Welcome to Cork Talks, a European Researchers' Night initiative where we talk to researchers and industry leaders who shape our everyday lives through their work. Our aim is to bring research to life, working to explain our changing world and to showcase the innovation that enables that change. In this week's Cork Talks, we delve into our changing reality. Traditionally, when we talk about reality, we're talking about the aggregate of all that is real within a system. As innovations and advances in audio, video and haptic technologies progress, so too does our perception of what is real. Virtual reality is the term we've given to the integration of these emerging technologies. And our guests today are here to talk about how changing applications of VR can influence how we perceive reality and potentially improve our lived experiences. If you're anything like me, when someone mentions the words virtual reality, your head probably goes to a games console or one of those headsets that brings you to the top of a roller coaster or into the middle of a jungle from the comfort of your kitchen. Well, that's about to change today. Welcome to the first episode of Cork Talks, where we are discussing our changing reality in an increasingly virtual world. We're delighted to have you with us. We're also delighted to have our panel of guests, Professor Patrick Hen, Director of Research and Education at UCC's Research Centre. And joining Patrick today is Dr. Annalisa Setti, who is a lecturer in UCC's School of Applied Psychology. She also leads the ACME Lab, which studies multisensory perception and cognition. So welcome to you both. We're delighted to have you here. Patrick, if I could start with you and ask you to give us uh, an insight into the work that you do and the work of the Assert Centre. My name is is Pat Hen. I'm a medical graduate from UCC from 1982 uh, and I trained initially in paediatrics and child health in Ireland in the UK. I took up a full-time academic post in UCC over 12 years ago and I'm now the Director of Research and Education at the Assert Centre in UCC and the acronym ASSERT stands for the application of the science of simulation to education, research and technology in, in medicine. And we're part of the College of Medicine and Health. And the College of Medicine and Health in UCC is the primary academic partner to the Irish Health Services and the South Southwest Hospital Group and to a broad range of community services. And our overall aim at ASSERT is to enable safer health care that reduces medical error and improves patient safety, patient care and patient outcomes. And we have a twofold vision really, to be a centre of excellence for training for healthcare professionals and also to be, if you could say, an ecosystem that connects and supports academics, clinicians, businesses and medtech industry to generate real world solutions for health, societal and economic benefit by the application of the science of simulation. Our primary responsibility in terms of our education and training purposes is for healthcare training. We use our simulation facilities to train healthcare professionals in what are called the technical and non-technical skill sets. So a technical skill, for example, would be putting in a drip line into your vein and the non-technical skill sets would be how to work in a team, for example, or how to communicate effectively. Now, it's important to understand that simulation does not replace clinical training. It is an adjunct. It is a support to develop the skills in clinical training. Even though the technology is very, very helpful in delivering the training, the focus should not be on the, on the technology alone. It should be on how you design the curriculum to deliver the training. And that's the most important part of, of simulation-based training. Very the other aspect of ASSERT is that we are involved in research and innovation. So we engage with um, medical technology companies from both startups to multinationals to help them um, in the development of 
their devices and processes using simulation and also supporting this development in the in, in the real world environment. I actually had the pleasure of watching one of the simulations in the Assert Centre and I'm really excited to kind of dig into that side of things and, and really um, de- describe that and I suppose open it up to our listener. So but first I'm going to switch over to Annalisa. Annalisa, could you give us a little bit of an overview of your work and your involvement with um, virtual reality as well? My background is in uh, cognitive science in Italy and I've studied in uh, in Switzerland and then uh, moved to Ireland where I worked in the Institute of Neuroscience for a number of years. I've collaborated with the, the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging and I'm in uh, UCC six years maybe. So, so my core interest and, and what we try to develop uh, in our lab is, uh, which uh, I mean, I'm, I'm flattered to be here with uh, uh, with Patrick because we are not as as big as the assert for sure. But uh, we're very passionate about this idea that uh, cognition can be improved and maintained, capitalizing on a real uh, environment, of, on what we do in our real life, where we live, where we go. And, and what we do with our bodies. So, um, so we're trying to bring, to bring cognitive training and perceptual training outside the lab. For us, uh, we're, we're just discovering really virtual reality as an enabler to bring the outside world to the person. And this idea is that, you know, when you go out and, you know, you, you have to go to the shops and you walk on the street, you uh, have to cross the, the traffic lights, and there is a lot of cognitive stimulation there. And you have to keep your task of remembering where you're going, what you want to buy in the shop. All of that um, maintains your brain and builds up your uh, cognitive abilities. So, so what we've tried to do is to bring that into the home. And virtual reality is a way uh, for us to do that. For people, for example, that don't go out as often, say older adults, um, we are exploring virtual reality as a tool uh, to enable people to to have the world come to them. That's something that is really fascinating to me. And actually, from your research, how have people been engaging with that technology and how has it been impacting them, I suppose, in a, an everyday form? In my own research, I think people are... Uh, definitely impacted by technology. And I think the interesting aspect is that, for example, older people, we kind of picture them in a sort of stereotypical way as not as much interested or involved in technology. But what we find is that there is actually uh, very much of an interest in using technology. And we have a study, for example, uh, not on VR, but where we use another form of technology, activity trackers uh, with older people and older people actually were very much interested in knowing more about themselves, utilizing these activity trackers and link them with their phone. So it really raised the level of awareness. And of course, this level of awareness can give insight uh, to the person on how then take into their hands how to improve their cognition, you know, what they can do more to exercise more, to keep more, more active and more engaged. And, uh, you know, VR is, is another tool 
uh, for that purpose. Staying on the subject of helping people who are maybe more vulnerable, Patrick, when you look in the media or you're looking at some of the hot topics um, around virtual reality on social media, some of the biggest innovations you hear about come from the healthcare sector. You were talking about simulations earlier. I was saying to you that I had witnessed one down in the Assert Centre and it was incredible. And I would just like you to explain for our listeners what your simulations and the training that you provide in an assert is like in detail the key thing to understand about simulation from the outset is that it's it's a technique so sometimes people focus completely on the technology but basically it's an approach to replace real world experiences um, with guided experiences in an environment that's simulated to replicate um, the substantial aspects of what's of the real world in a fully um, interactive manner so in assert we can fit out one of our rooms to look like a, a labor suite. We have um, a very high fidelity mannequin that will deliver a baby. For example, if we were training medical students on how to do a straightforward normal delivery, we could set up the simulation to do that. And then we can give feedback on performance and indicate um, strengths in performances or identify areas where performance could be developed further. Um, and we can indicate how somebody might go about doing that. So it's effectively a very safe environment to do this because we're using simulation technologies. There's no risk to the patient. So if something goes wrong, nobody suffers any harm. Students or the trainees are in a very safe learning environment to do so, where if you were to make a mistake or, or an error, be it small or large, it, it has no consequences for anybody. That's effectively what we do in simulation. Um, and the ultimate goal is to, um, I guess, to, to, to engage learners to, to, to develop their skill sets and to use that to take them along their learning curve so that when they get into a real-life situation, they're further up the learning curve than they might otherwise be, and therefore they can attend to more important things within the real environment because they'll have, they'll have gained some knowledge and experience from the simulated environment. Those simulations um, and the innovative technology that you're working with there, they sound like game changers when it comes to training the next generation of healthcare providers. Is that something that you have witnessed, that these simulations have had a major impact on those who are, who are learning using that technology? Yes. Uh, I mean, anyone who does simulations and when we get feedback. So one of the really important things if you're delivering sim- simulation-based training is that you get feedback from the participants um, and it's, it's generally overwhelmingly positive but we also know from from research that, that simulation can improve performance um, and can improve patient outcomes and we have done research that has shown that to some extent it's not to be all and end all of training as i said it really is is is, is an adjunct to 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 clinical training but it, it is a very good way of training and it's used in lots of other industries so you you, you can take trainees to scenarios that they might experience so for example we would take our final year medical students through um, dealing with a heart attack which is a common event dealing with an asthma attack for, for example which is a common event we would also take them through for example dealing with an anaphylactic reaction which isn't so common but it's something that is is an emergency and you need to know how to deal with it correctly and you might experience an anaphylactic reaction in a patient on your first day at work or it might be two or three years into uh, your, your, your work practice that you might have to deal with that. And sometimes when I talk about simulation, I, I play a clip from the BBC News 
from about 12 years ago, and it's a clip of a, an aeroplane landing in, in, in Warsaw Airport, a passenger aeroplane landing, and it had to land without a undercarriage, and there was 148 people on board. So they got into the emergency procedures that they needed to do, that they had trained for, and the aeroplane landed safely. And when the co-pilot was, was discussing this in a, in a news conference afterwards, and people were commentating on his skill sets, he, he was at pains to point out that he actually goes through such a procedure in simulation once every six months as part of his training. The chances that he'll have to land a plane without an undercarriage again are probably zero, because it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime event. But he, he was able to do it or participate in it successfully, um, and people walked off the plane alive without any injury. Now, also, the ground crew had to take part in, this, in, 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 the, in the landing, so they had to spread the foam, etc., and get their machines out there, um, get the fire retardant out there. And, of course, they had done all of that in simulation. So simulation can, can help you train for the everyday events, but also it can help you train for the not-so-everyday events so that you're able to respond effectively and efficiently. You have to maintain that training, so you need to do it um, regularly to, to, to maintain those skill sets for the for the infrequent occurrences. It must be very exciting to be at the heart of that kind of really cutting edge transformative technology when it comes to teaching the next generation of healthcare workers and providers. It is very exciting and the, the key aspect from our perspective is, is that we use it as more than a toy that is actually a process that will improve patient outcomes and improve training for the, the, the trainees that attend the ASSERT Centre. Um, and it's really, really important that you that you focus on that. And of course, with technology improving, um, we can do more realistic simulations. This is where um, virtual reality and augmented reality will, will come into its own in the future. Because when you've been to the Acer Center, they're very expensive places to build, mm-hmm. and that's one of the one of the issues with them. You know that that technology is is, is very expensive to build, and of course, technology moves forward and it has to be replaced. So virtual reality has the potential of, of reducing costs, allowing us which is to, to deliver it remotely, which is, is, is very relevant in, in, during the COVID pan- pandemic, as we've all learned. So you know, our universities have gone to online teaching and learning processes, which if you had said to somebody um, this time last year that you'd have to put, put your university programs on online, they would have said, oh no, you can't do that. But we've been forced into doing that with COVID. But virtual reality will, in a sense, I think, enable us to develop much more remote simulation-based training because it's developing at a very fast, fast rate. So people can become immersed within the the virtual environment. What is also developing is what's called haptic feedback. So haptic is our perception of touch. And now devices can be developed that will let you, just by putting your fingers on, on a screen, for example, the different feedbacks of touch. So you might feel... Uh, a rough um, surface you may be able to palpate a, a virtual pulse and palpate what what a normal pulse feels like palpate what an abnormal pulse might feel like in various situations like that and also with virtual reality it will move on from where it's mainly used now is in kind of pre-clinical training so for anatomy into training for for clinical situations and it will allow it to be done remotely which will reduce the cost. It will also enable the trainee to be able to do this in their own time. So some people study well at nighttime, some people study well in the morning time, some people can study any time of the day. So they can log in and log out of that. 
but it, it it's not there yet and it will it, it will have to be uh, hurried along gently but it will have to be reliably done as well it also brings into focus the fact that these simulation centers like like the asset center uh, can only be afforded in the developed world mm-hmm. so how do you train people in the developing world using simulation based technologies and that's really important because you don't want to make further inequalities in healthcare training going forward um, so that's where I see virtual reality coming into its own in the future. What I love there, Patrick, about what you said is, you know, you're talking about virtual reality as an enabler. And Annalisa, that's something that you touched on earlier. And I'm wondering if you could develop on that in reference to Wildworks, a project that you're working on. Could you tell us a bit about that? Wildworks is our collaborator. Um, so Wildworks is part of CCAD, which is, I suppose I can define it as a social enterprise. So we collaborate with them uh, because um, the project is about biodiversity and really building in the community biodiversity as a way to also regenerate and, and foster growth in the community uh, in, in a more global sense. So Wildworks is our collaborator in this project. And what we are um, aiming to do is, if I take the example of Passage West in, in Cork, Passage West and um, Biodiversity Group through uh, Wildworks um, are linking up with UCC to develop uh, a biodiversity plan. And within this biodiversity plan, we aim to, again, use virtual reality as a mean to bring uh, the beauty of nature in Passage West to people that may not be uh, availing of it uh, all the time. And we aim to do that as intergenerational projects. So for example, uh, the girls guides, or um, we want to get in contact with schools and have teenagers go and get footage uh, with a 360 camera of the beauty of nature in passage, and then put it in a way that can be uh, seen and, and enjoyed by, for example, older people, they wouldn't be able to reach out to to certain areas or, you know, to go out a a steep hill, try to use the community uh, for the benefit of the community and and, uh, nature is and and virtual reality are the the enablers and and what really fosters this uh, this link. Yeah, so so that's the idea uh, of the Kuba project that we're running with, uh, with Wildworks. Uh, which is, you know, in line with this idea of of citizen science as well. And I think more and more um, we need uh, people that are able to to speak the language of technology. For example, in my field, the language of psychology. So as Patrick said, there is a lot of opportunities uh, to develop technologies and and in, in a way that is uh, available to, to um, the largest amount of people possible. So for example, I'm involved in uh, um, the psychology and computing degree in uh, in psychology in UCC, and and this is it is a novel approach where people get trained in psychology and in computer science is to try to develop a technology that um, can we can bring to people uh, could be virtual reality, but the idea is uh, we want again to simulate the real environment being a natural environment or a street in Cork and people being able to uh, conduct real life tasks, so cognitive tasks that we have to do and and in a way, again, simulate the real environment for the purpose of cognitive training. And I think it is very innovative that, uh, you know, these students will be able to speak the language 
of both you know sciences and and bring them together so it, it's very exciting in that sense would you be able to share some examples of that work in process there is for students they will develop an app so initially we thought about a virtual reality environment but now with the problems with accessing the vr lab and you know the whole covid situation probably it will be a desktop app but the idea is that uh, to build on previous research for example there was a project called city quest that was developed in in trinity where they had older people navigate a simulated environment a very realistic environment and then they could train to to learn different pathways and they had tasks so for example to reach uh, a certain street or to go to a certain shop and uh, their spatial navigation abilities actually training in this uh, virtual reality environment uh, improved so the idea mm-hmm. is that hopefully then the same person can go out and have better navigation abilities or you know know where they're going better uh, more efficiently in the actual environment. So we want to build on that. And also uh, the other aspect that I'm very interested in is to cap- capitalize on the benefits of nature, bringing, uh, yes, busy environments that can you know, train the brain, but also uh, natural environments that can restore uh, our attention and can restore our brain. So, so these are the two um, core areas that we are looking at. There's a strong link there, it seems, with helping people who are maybe experiencing mental health issues. Would it be fair to say that virtual reality could play a significant role in helping to alleviate the mental health crisis that we're going through in Ireland? Yeah, I think so, because, uh, I mean, virtual reality has been used in uh, in psychotherapy already. But, for example, we had a study that I can briefly describe on uh, exam anxiety. A student of mine, Alison, last year um, looked at colleagues, you know, other students uh, that had exam anxiety, low and high exam anxiety. And then she called them into the lab and she measured their positive and negative affect. And they had a, a sort of a simulated exam. And then she exposed one group to a virtual nature and one group to virtual urban environment. And what she finds is that the negative affect, so those negative feelings that are associated with worry, with rumination, uh, with anxiety, were actually diminished after the exposure to uh, virtual nature just for five minutes. Uh, She took a 360 video of, of a forest and then they could just look around this natural environment for five minutes. So it was very short. And still, we have a a significant decrease in negative affect. And what we would like to do now is to try to replicate the result, but using Google Cardboard, students can could try to do it at home. Um, So in in semester two with the green campus in UCC, we have uh, planned this study to see if we can relieve exam anxiety uh, without bringing people in the lab in a more uh, realistic environment, because again, uh, as Patrick was saying, the cost of uh, uh, you know a system, although it's not extremely prohibitive, but something like the Oculus is way more expensive than uh, you know than, than a Google Cardboard or any other mm-hmm. you know Cardboard type that you can use with your phone. So so the idea is we try to replicate the study, but in a sort of a less expensive and more user friendly version, and see if we can still get an improvement in. Uh, 
or lower exam anxiety. Five minutes is an incredible time to make such a difference like that. Like that's five minutes that a lot of people would spend maybe scrolling through Instagram or, you know, watching something on TV or, or you know, browsing through YouTube or something. So it's actually incredible to see what such a short time span of exposure to, to nature can do. That's incredible. It would be remiss of me to to have this conversation with you if we didn't touch on the current state of affairs in the world, the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and that we had to move online pretty much overnight. Patrick, going back to what you were talking about a couple of minutes ago about how impactful virtual reality has been in educating people, how are you um, adapting in the Assert Centre to keep that line of education going when there are COVID restrictions and when we don't know, I suppose, when we're going to be going back to the norm in terms of teaching? That's very challenging at the moment, given the the impact of of the COVID restrictions, because um, essentially to do the simulations in the Astor Centre, you know, you have to be on site. Um, To go back to one of the topics that Annalisa just mentioned, so we have a fully immersive suite in in the Astor Centre that we're in the process of developing, and we've gone through the first phase of development. And this is a a suite where you can play video um, and you can put in sights and smells and noises, et cetera, into this immersive suite. So people in the simulation or in the training are completely surrounded by that environment. So, for example, so one of the things that we actually did earlier uh, last year was we we, we simulated a white powder event in in an emergency department of a hospital in collaboration with Ungardus Giacona for training purposes for them. Now, you you could replicate that quite easily in, in, in the immersive suite. You could put somebody on top of Karen Tuhul having to deal with a lady who's in labor, who goes into labor unexpectedly, and you can develop the simulation so you incorporate that remoteness into it. But also the, the immersive suite, and this is what I'd like to see happen with it in the wider UCC community uh, and in our wider community outside of the university, very much along the lines that Annalisa spoke about. So, for example, you could replicate, if, if you had permission, from some of the major galleries in the world, you could put the paintings in there, you know, you could record them and put them in there and people could visit them. You could use it for, for history if you wanted to replicate the place where the Battle of Kinsale took place, for example, you could record all of that, bring it up, you could play it onto the walls. So the walls in, in Assert, they actually cost 10,000 euro to paint because they're cinematic grade walls so that they'll replicate the projection very accurately. And we have very advanced computer technology to do that immersive um, simulations and they can be used across all kinds of domains as I said one aspect we, 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 we were in discussion with before all of this, this COVID problem kicked off was providing um, orientation to, to the university for our students coming in who might find it challenging to be in big crowds initially so for example um, our students who might have autism they could have a virtual tour of the university find their way around it before they'd have to go into the, the larger crowded environment as it would have been we were also looking at using the immersive room with some dental colleagues to be able to develop a pathway to bring children who have autism into the dental clinic so they could get their dental treatments. And you can also put sensory inputs into that for the smell, sight, sound, and indeed touch. That is the, is, is the potential for using the immersive suite and using the virtual technologies. Uh, unfortunately, COVID came just as we were getting the first fit fitted out and we're about to start experimenting with it. So that's, that's where we are with that at the moment. 
But once we get on top of COVID, we'll get back to developing that. We don't know how long we're going to be in this situation. And, you know, just from what you're saying, the innovations that are taking place in the in the realm of virtual reality are just so impactful. And I suppose if we want to have more innovations, we need to have the research behind it. And I suppose a lot of the times when you talk about virtual reality, for example, myself, you know, I was saying that when I hear the words virtual reality, I think of a headset or I think of a video game. And I think there's sometimes people can kind of focus on the glamour of it, but actually we need to be focusing on getting researchers into the labs to be working on the technology that underpins that. How do you think we we entice researchers into the labs to be working on, you know, this cutting edge technology? I think to be able to do that, you need to come with a, an interprofessional approach. You need to get um, groups with backgrounds from technology to healthcare to, to psychology to behavioral science working together. And I think you need to focus on, on real life problems. Often, I, I, I think you know, with, with all of these new technologies, you get the hope, you get the hype, you get the promise of them, but also you get the perils of them. And what you need is you need, I guess, champions of the technologies, but you need to show that they're effective. There's no point in investing in all of these technologies down the road and spending considerable sums of money in developing them if they don't make any difference. And that's really the important thing is to show that they make a difference. And that's why I think the multidisciplinary approach is important. Um, and, and, And that's what we've learned over the years in terms of research is that when you get people from different disciplines together, they obviously bring different strengths, um, different visions, different views, different opinions. And usually the combined outcome is very much bigger than the sums of the um, individual parts. The other thing I think is that we should be be collaborative. If you look at Ireland, for example, given our size and our our demographics, we should really be, be working collaboratively and not competitively across university. One thing that's often struck me is that we should have, if you take simulation training in healthcare, and this would be the same for virtual reality training in healthcare, is that we should have maybe the concept of a national simulation centre of, of Ireland, and then you would have campuses in the various third level institutions. But I, I, I think funding is an issue. We'll also have to learn to work with the industries that develop these because they have the funding. So academics come at it from a very different point of view than we'll say business and industry do, even though that business and industry have, I guess, shareholders that they have to keep happy as well. But I think that's that's how we have to do things and maybe do things a little bit differently. The other thing I think about, about virtual reality and the Internet of Medical Things and the Internet in general was it means that you can now collaborate with somebody, you know, 5,000 miles away much more easily than you could have done in the past. Just on the subject there of remote patient monitoring, I suppose it kind of... Um, it's the kind of topic that I would imagine would be divisive. Um, Mm. And I suppose that also draws on something else that you mentioned there while you were talking, which was the perils. And I'm conscious that, um, you know, I've been saying, oh, yeah, fantastic, fantastic to to what you've been talking about. But actually, as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. And, you know, there there are downsides to virtual reality as well. And, And Lisa, if I could ask you, when it comes to the ethical challenges, what is kind of foremost on your mind when you're doing your research in the area? For me, the main challenge is, uh, again, do I have a real world problem that needs Mm. to be solved using this technology? Because, you know, it's all very fancy and and expensive, uh, more or less expensive, but do we need this VR? Uh, Is it necessary? So 
if um, you know I can do the same study with say exam anxiety and and show you a picture of nature and I get exactly the same effect I don't need VR you know I don't need an immersive yeah. environment so so the idea is we need to to not be carried away by how exciting is the new technology and understand to what extent we actually need it. So for me, the ethical issue is this problem, say cognitive maintenance and, and brain training in uh, the older person. Do I need a VR system? Do I need a system that provides multisensory experiences? Or is it enough to just do a, a, a game on your phone? So this is, I think, the ethical question because you know you would have to invest money and resources and you know th this different variety of expertise in programming and you know analyzing the data and all the rest uh, that maybe you don't need with you know a PowerPoint of nature. So the ethical issue is to what extent do we need it? And really, uh, having studied that very systematically show in what circumstances um, this type of apparatus is, is actually useful. So, so there are studies that show, for example, that even exposure to pictures of nature are effective. But the idea is in terms of our cognition and affect, really the, the multisensory experience that Patrick mentioned you know, about the interactive suite seem to be a core element of how our brain works, how our brain gathers information and maintains efficiency. So if we can reproduce that interactivity, that multisensory experience, we would have higher benefits for the individual. So we need, a, I think, a lot of studies that really systematically study these differences and, and justify the investment into these um, more sophisticated resources. And Patrick, if I could ask you, you know, from your, your research into the area, it might be a, a very sweeping general question, but do you think people in Ireland are open to these medical innovations through virtual reality? Is it something that we as a nation are accepting of or are people a bit, do people approach it with a bit of trepidation? I think, and, and this is anecdotal from my own experience of it, is that people are open to it. One of the issues, if, if, if you take remote patient monitoring or telemedicine, so now I visit my GP twice a year for checkups. The last one I did was a telephone conversation, and I was quite happy to do that. And I think other people are. And when people study this in detail, um, so they looked at the idea of, of remote monitoring of your health condition and people's using it. So the two issues for people were, and this is, this, this is objective evidence, was that they were concerned about the security of their data. That was number mm -hmm. one. And that's really, really important. And that the data isn't misused by somebody else for some other purposes. And the second one was, would there be somebody there to, to do something about it? So there are... Um, and have been developed algorithms, you know, using artificial intelligence that can predict a stroke before it happens. But of course, there's no point all that information going somewhere if you don't have somebody to, to do something about it and to intervene early to say, well, look, Pat, we've, we've got this data on you. You need to come into the hospital. We need to treat your blood pressure, whatever the heck it is. They were really their two major concerns. I also think you, we, need, we need to try not to not to medicalize these these devices and i guess we we will be living with chronic illnesses as we go forward you know the the developed world's population is aging people are living much longer and now we're living with chronic illnesses and one of the things that struck me is that is is, is that 
I mean, I'm 62 now. I don't regard myself as elderly. So, but but people, um, you know, of, of older ages, they want to have their independence. They want to have an input into their health care. They don't want to be um, nannied by the state too much or by the healthcare services. So they need to be devices that aren't clumsy to wear or difficult to wear or, 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 or challenging to wear. And that's why I, I think a lot of technology companies like, like the big companies like Apple and so on are developing these smartwatches. The smartwatch, you know, we can measure your blood pressure and your pulse and so on. But also it does other things. But I, I can envisage devices being being developed that are purely for monitoring your healthcare that would be worn like a watch. But it's it's important that people have control over that data. The other thing I think that it can do is it can empower patients so you can have, you know, access to your own data. Just from a personal experience, so several years ago I had to have a 24-hour blood pressure monitoring done. And when I asked for the data sheet, that the printout of it, to bring to my GP, I was told, oh, no, we'll send it straight to your GP. And I thought, hang on a second, that's that's my data. That's mm-hmm. my blood pressure readings. Yep. They're mine. I should be able to see them. And, of course, if you're invested in your own health care, and it's also important for carers you know, who are taking care of people, that they get this information as well. And, and our model of healthcare is, you know, so if, if, if you've got to go to the outpatients, it's the same as it was 100 years ago. You know, 100 people turn up to see one person and scheduled across 10-minute intervals or whatever the heck it is. 80 of those people might not actually have necessarily to be physically there if their data is presented to their GP or to their the, the, the hospital services. They might be able to give you a ring and say, look, we've got your data on your blood pressure and your pulse, et cetera, whatever the heck it is, your blood sugar levels if you're a diabetic and everything looks fine. How do you feel? Do you need to come up and see us? And you may say, well, no, I feel great. Actually, I don't need mm-hmm. to come and see you. For the other 20% then who, who do need to be seen, you can spend more time with them. Yeah. And I think, you know, the idea that, that, that instead of going to the clinic nurse and having your blood pressure measured and, and blood tests taken, you know, they could have that data when you arrive or you, you could do it by teleconference and by telemedicine. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I think, where the future will go. Now, yeah. we will still want to see our doctors and our nurses. We will want that person interaction. Yeah. But I think we could do it more efficiently and more effectively. But we also need to get people involved uh, who, who have the conditions from the very start. So if you're doing research, to get them involved. So if you want to say, look, I want to test a, a, a wearable for condition X, that you invite people who have condition X, not just to be participants in the research, but to be part of the research and to inform the research. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's, that's very important so that they have some o- ownership over yeah. it. And I think that's the way to persuade people to, to bring them along. Mm-hmm. But the security of their data is, is important and having mm-hmm. someone to do something Absolutely. Well, listen, we've we've just run out of time. I just want to say thank you so much for a very, very insightful uh, discussion about virtual reality. I feel like we could have talked all day about all things pre and post COVID um, and the, the landscape. So thank you both so much, um, Patrick and Annalisa. And in an ideal world, we would have been in the studio all together. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us. Cork Talks is brought to you by Cork Discoveries, a European Researchers' Night initiative. Tune in next week to hear about our changing planet. Cork Discoveries runs from November 26th to 28th at corkdiscoveries.org. With thanks to our partners, UCC Academy, UCC, Chagask, Cork City Council, the British Council and Black Rock Castle Observatory. This project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme under grant agreement number 955330.